is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Chabot. The final frontier for the RAF as their first space pilot is selected. Should the military step in during a civil emergency? China has been communist for 70 years, but Hong Kong has taken the shine off their celebrations. And it's back to the future for Sweden and their newly reopened Cold War bunker. The RAF has chosen its first space pilot. After a tough selection process, Flight Lieutenant Matthew Stannard has been named as the man for the Air Force's fledgling space programme. He's going joining a partnership programme with Virgin Orbit to launch satellites into the skies of California. And Flight Lieutenant Stannard spoke to our reporter, Carla Prater, in the USA. She began by asking him how he felt about the news. Yeah, really excited. It was only a week ago I found out... Um, and I'm absolutely thrilled. The idea of being part of Virgin Orbit and part of the partnership is fantastic. For those who don't know what this programme is, what are you actually going to be doing? OK, so Virgin Orbit is a small satellite launch provider uh, and they launch small satellites into orbit. Uh, I'm a test pilot in the RAF. The RAF want to you know, take that next step into space. And so I've been seconded to Virgin Orbit to be a test pilot for Virgin Orbit uh, for the next five years. So what sort of heights and what sort of orbit are you going to be hitting? Yeah, so it uses a, a modified Boeing 747 with a massive rocket underneath. Um, the 747 goes up to typical airline heights, 35,000 feet, and it does a, a loft manoeuvre to get rid of this rocket, which is actually not so dissimilar to manoeuvres I used to do on the tornado. How did you get selected for this particular role? Because I imagine there were quite a few pilots keen for that. When the application came out, the prerequisite was to be a test pilot. Uh, so lucky enough, I put my name forward. Uh, from there, they shortlisted down to four. That was the RAF saying, hey, any of these four, you know, will be happy if you take either of them. And then I came out here as a four. Uh, we interviewed with the company and then the, the company got to choose uh, who they wanted. And luckily for me, uh, it was me. Explain then your background and what that conversion is going to entail. So my background, I was a tornado pilot. Uh, and following being a tornado pilot, I went to test pilot school and moved on to the Typhoon at the time that all the tornado weapons were coming onto Typhoon. I've been on tests on the Typhoon for the last three years and uh, and now coming over to Virgin Orbit. Out of all the roles you could be doing now in, within the RAF, how does this feel to be part of space? Yeah, I suppose challenge would be the right word. I feel I do feel privileged. Um, kind of pinching myself, right place, right time, that uh, I can be involved in this for the RAF and, and taking that next step, which, which it is for the Air Force, the next step, which is space. That was Flight Lieutenant Matthew Stannard talking to Carla Prater. Well, our defence analyst Christopher Lee joins us in the studio as ever. Christopher, the RF takes the next step. How does this all fit in with the UK's future plans in this domain? The United Kingdom has been in uh, space for a long time. I mean, let's forget the glamour of, or so-called glamour of walking on the moon and stuff like that, um, and, and what some of the bigger operators do. But within Europe, within the European Space Agency, which is not part of the political thing, uh, and providing uh, stuff that's in satellites, including uh, the long-range satellites, which are observing, observing sort of outer space. But it also has this near-Earth observation role. Near-Earth observation role eventually is about surveillance. And so the, the Virgin Orbit uh, satellite is, is for looking down at the ground to get an idea what's there, get distinctions. Um, with the sort of uh, satellites with uh, you use for actually sort of uh, spotting what an enemy is doing and also doing, spotting what people are doing in terms of uh, climate change, all sorts of things like that, sort of more benign. But the longer term 
is that the United Kingdom has got to have its own, for example, its own GPS system. Uh, it's got to have a constellation of satellites that can actually do the job that the Americans do at the moment for us, or we do with the Americans, that we're not doing any more. We won't be doing any more with the European uh, uh, constellation, which we've been edged out of because of Brexit, mm-hmm. etc. And so the RAF is, it may be, you know, this m- may not be the big stuff, but it's pretty big in, in the RAF terms. And also with the United Kingdom, You've, if you want a satellite, you can learn how to launch it. This is one way of doing it. Christopher, stay with us. Now, we're used to seeing military personnel helping out in times of need. The recent dam crisis at Whaley Bridge in Derbyshire, where RAF Chinooks flew in vital ballast, and, of course, their presence on the streets during Operation Tempera in the wake of terror attacks. But what next? Military personnel operating alongside the police in a civil disorder situation. Should it? Could it happen? Well, Lieutenant General James Bashel joins us, former Commander Home Command. Good to speak to you today, General. In what circumstances does the military go to the aid of the civil powers for security reasons? Well, good afternoon, Kate. I think, I mean, first of all, your, your first question, I think, is very much a political question in terms of extent and, and should or shouldn't they be. But it, uh, to come to your, to your direct question, to me, in terms of the process, I mean, it's always the local authorities who are uh, swamped by a, a particular, say, natural disaster, who then approach through the cabinet secretary, uh, cabinet office sec- secretariat, approach the relevant government department, and in the case of it's the MOD, our ministers normally make a decision about, can we do it? Have we got the capability to meet the task? How much is it going to cost is always an issue, and how long it's going to last for? And on the, on the proviso that the minister is uh, content, then the section is the relevant section of the CCA is signed off, and then the, the troops are then switched to command or home command, who, working with the local authorities, then um, d- deploys the, the, the assets for as long as they're required but by the local authorities. And what about when it comes to helping out the police for security reasons? Well, it's the same, same, the same, exactly the same process. Um, it's a level two uh, CCA rather than level one, and the the, the request is made now. In, in the in the instance of October when we deployed in 2017, we had already rehearsed the plans, so the deployments had all been practiced, and everyone understood what they were going to do, and the troops were all held at readiness at short notice to do what they ended up doing. So it's the same process; it's just a slightly different task. And what kind of tasks might the military be carrying out when they are backfilling the police? What's the process and what are they supposed to do? Well, in, in the case of Optempera, the, because the, the, the threat uh, at the time was critical, the police were needed elsewhere. So what we did was essentially backfill against policemen who were then removed from their static defensive task or patrolling task, and, and they were then taken elsewhere and used elsewhere and we essentially backfilled them. But that was only the sort of, that was the, a plan that we'd had, as I said, we'd practiced and rehearsed, and it's, it was a standard plan. Beyond that, that there may be additional requests, and we always worried about a, a, a terrorist grouping that was mobile and loose and not controlled, and whether they wanted surveillance assets or other assets to try and help them uh, find and locate armed terrorists who were on the move. And when you have the military uh, backfilling the police in this situation, who decides their terms of reference, their rules of engagement, and who are they reporting to? OK, so, so we were very clear that the reporting chain remained the police, and every soldier that was deployed with a policeman had a radio, but the control mechanism came down the police radio net, 
who would then task the local policeman would then task the local soldier to assist them if required. And we had, um, you know, again, carefully prepared and rehearsed rules of engagement, card alpha, which was to only use force in self-defence. Our defence analyst, Chris Lee is listening I to mean, it's, it's, it's really important, isn't it, to remind ourselves that it's the police, the, the, the army, let's just say the army, uh, go in, they're under police command. And that is, they go in as an aid to the, what used to be called an aid to the civil power. And it's not the, arm, the army just being put on the streets to take over from the police. It's the other way around. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that, that principle is, is absolutely endorsed in, all the, in the CCA and, and in all our training. How do you feel then when the, when the media does portray it as the military sort of out on the streets? And of course, you know, we've got the current Brexit situation where some people politically motivated are suggesting that there, there might be civil unrest. Well, I think to come to the first point, I think the, at the time in 2017, we were probably not on the streets long enough. And really, we didn't probably get the narrative right quickly enough to explain what we were doing and why we were there. In and what it, way? It, what, what, well, in, in, in terms of the, the, there was never a military spokesman put forward to explain what we were doing. Um, it was very clear, the police spokesman was very clear that we were supporting them. But we probably didn't spend a long, have enough time, because the operation last was so short, to really explain what I've just talked through, that we were backfilling to assist other policemen to go and um, do other tasks, and also perhaps to talk through some of these chains of command points of authority that we've just been debating. So do you regret that then? Um, well, I mean, I, not really. I regret's the wrong word. I think it was perhaps a missed opportunity, but it, it was such a one-off and it happened so fast, we probably didn't really have enough time to really think it through. Because I suppose when the me- media does portray what the military does on the streets, you know, the... the, the the impression that's given is that it's a last resort kind of scenario and it's an Armageddon almost. But actually, the military support of the police can sometimes be quite small. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the police lack a number of specialist capabilities that the military hold, which are, we, we are able to deploy to help them. Um, uh, you know, and we saw that with, with say, the, the drones at Gatwick. Um, you know, there, so there are, it, and it's, it, it's very clear all the time, and I'm going to come back to my point about the media, that the police had to lead this. It has to be seen as a police operation that we are supporting. I, I wholly endorse everything Christopher just said. I mean, it cannot be seen to be the other way around. Tell, can, tell me, um, say in Home Command, how do you find A, the manning, and B, the time to, to, to weld it into the rest of the things you're doing? How do you, to get people constantly trained up? Well, to- there, there, is, there is a permanent staff in the it, that's based in home command but um whose job is every day it's a standing headquarters that deals with uh homeland issues so so they're always there it's a joint it's a joint team from all three services w- with civilians as well and and they have they, they provide the nucleus which can then be um expanded if, if the operation became too large or went on for too long and then around the country at all the various regions you have liaison officers who are embedded in the local authorities who are essentially a sort of early warning and detection. They can very quickly... I mean, I, when I talk through that process of what happens, all the time there's, 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 there's a conversation going on. So it's, it's not a surprise to Commander Home Command when eventually he's told to do something because he's been talking through his liaison officers to the local authorities all the time. So and that, that is their permanent job as well, to, to embed themselves in um, the local authorities and understand the sort of contingencies that might require military support. Are reservists... Well, I, I, there are some of the reservists, and I have to say, sadly, not enough. I, I would love to see more use of reservists because I think from a military perspective, the deployment to help in certainly natural disasters 
to have local communities being looked after by local people who are part of the military, I think is a very positive thing for our nation. Well, it's fascinating talking to you. Lieutenant General James Bashel, thank you very much for your time today. Meanwhile, the everyday business of the army continues. Iron Viper is a biannual exercise which tests 101 Logistic Brigade's ability to respond to the enemy in an urban rather than rural setting. Working in Swindon, they've been looking at the basics like operating in the urban environment without sticking out like a sore thumb. Well, Captain Aaron Thompson from 3 Regiment Royal Logistic Corps explains more. As part of Iron Viper, we've deployed to Thames Water Sewage Treatment Plant. So when we arrived, this was just a concrete hard standing. What we tried to do is to uh, establish a fully functioning regimental headquarters, but not looking like one, most importantly. So as you can see, we're, we're utilising these cabins, uh, a series of ISO containers, and just really blending into the sorts of buildings that you'd see in an industrial estate like this, but with the functionality of a regimental headquarters. Well, the exercise tests the skill of camouflage experts like Lance Corporal Dean Murray. We've been given the opportunity to use different methods of cam, trying to get away from the green fleet vehicle because we're going to be in urban environments. So using things like blue tarpaulins, putting civilian uh, names on the side. We're using uh, side skirt hessians um, to hide the number of wheels because like, one of the main ways that people can identify these vehicles is through the number of wheels, the space in the wheels. I find that we have learned as a whole is um, to start thinking outside the box. That was Lance Corporal Dean Murray. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, China celebrates 70 years of communism, but the headache of Hong Kong continues. So what can be done? Modern China is 70 years old this week, but it's not the happiest birthday. Since March of this year, Hong Kong has been demonstrating, recently violently, against Beijing rule. In theory, the protest is against China's new extradition law, which Hong Kong Chinese believe could be used to extradite fugitive offenders to the mainland and refuse to allow them to return. Well, let's talk to Professor Steve Sang, who is director of the SOAS China Institute at the University of London. A good speech today, Professor. Was Tuesday's shoot of protester by police a mistake on the officer's part or a deliberate change in tactics? Now, we don't know that was just a mistake or whether it was a change of policy. But whatever it was, the incident was not well handled by the government as a whole. It was wrong on the part of the police commissioner to come out simply to say that without any investigation, he concluded the police officer had acted correctly and the victim of the shooting should be arrested and be charged. Uh, this would only inflame public opinions in Hong Kong. Your reading of this, have the Hong Kong demos gone too far? Well, the use of violence is to be deplored. Uh, Hong Kong really historically is a place where violence is not what people would accept. We get into the current situation partly because of a radicalization of some of the protesters, but it is also partly the result of gross mismanagement on the part of the authorities. If the government in Hong Kong keep on escalating the use of force in repressing the demonstrations, then they would have to expect that um, the, some of the demonstrators will get radicalized. And in the meantime, the Chinese do seem to be showing some kind of patience over all this and demonstrating that. Are they just waiting for it to play out or do you think their patience might snap? Well, they are really handle- handling it in absolutely 
the long wait in epicenter of the world. Hong Kong faced a similar challenge in 2003 when there was um, a very unpopular security, security law called the Article 23 legislation being uh, introduced. On that occasion, they withdrew the bill when half a million demonstrators came out to protest against it. They could have done the same in Hong Kong. It's precisely because they refused to withdraw something that was causing outrage that they caused an escalation in the event. What do you think will happen next? Well, regrettably, I think we are going to see the situation continues to escalate. Um, it's a political issue at stake in Hong Kong, and it requires a political solution. It's not simply a matter of using force to suppress people who have a difference in uh, how a situation should be handled. And since the government in Hong Kong and in Beijing insists really only on repression, ultimately we are going to see escalations and more force being used. So with Britain being the ex-colonial power, do you think the UK could play more of a role in mediating between the two sides? I think it's more than UK being an ex-colonial power. The United Kingdom signed a treaty with China in 1984 over the future of Hong Kong, which is meant to be valid until 2047. We have a treaty obligation to get involved in Hong Kong if and when the one country, two systems model is being uh, abandoned. And we are at the point of seeing that being unfolding. That was Professor Steve Sang. Christopher, um, treaty obligation there. I tell you what, the professor's doing a wind up there. Um, because there's no way the United Kingdom would recognize that from the, uh, from the last treaty that it had with China, uh, that we had an obligation, we, the United Kingdom, had an obligation to get in there and start, start so, mixing it. You don't do that. I mean, there is behind this, this thing's been going on for months now, and it's worse. Is it going to get worse before it gets better? Well, it's getting worse every, almost every weekend. I tell you, certain things, for example, the crowds, or part of the crowd, invaded the LegCo, which is like our parliament. That was over the top. They then went in and started burning underground stations, important ones like Taiku Dock and Wan Chai, etc. That was over the top, and they're losing, losing support, not just of people of worldwide, perhaps, but more importantly, is the bit we don't hear about is the other half of Hong Kong, the nut sellers, the traders, etc., the tourist industry. Uh, you know, you, you don't take what's dropped off small things such as you want to go to Australia, mm. you don't do the trip that gives you 12 hours in Hong Kong anymore. Is every chance that this thing, like a lot of things, will be settled at home? And this is what the Chinese don't want another Tiananmen Square reputation. And what will happen is that the people who are not on these marches will eventually sort of say, right, enough's enough. And they won't go as far as the students did 40 years ago in Tiananmen Square, which brought about that disaster. 
Now, North Korea is believed to have fired a ballistic missile from a submarine. Officials in South Korea say at least one weapon was fired towards its eastern sea. It's seen as a significant escalation from the short-range tests it has carried out earlier this year. The firing came just hours after Pyongyang announced that nuclear talks with US officials would resume later this week. Well, Gordon Chang, an expert on North Korea, says that may not be coincidental. Many times in the past, North Korea has engaged in hostile activities right before negotiations. So this is right out of the Kim family playbook. We've seen this for decades. We should not be surprised. What North Korea is saying is it can do what it wants, and the United States and the international community can do nothing about it. Well, Professor Eric Grove is a naval historian and defence analyst and joins us now. Um, Eric, um, what do you think about this missile launch? Well, I think it shows that the North Koreans are, are maturing their submarine-launched ballistic missile program. Uh, it appears to be a new variant of the, if I get get my Korean right, the 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 Puk Gyuk Song, the the third version, uh, and it appears to be a rather larger missile than the last one that that they tested. They have one submarine, an, an experimental submarine called 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 Gore. Uh, it may have been damaged in earlier tests, although it appears to be seaworthy again. And there are, and there, and there are persistent rumours of a larger, a 3,000-ton submarine, which, which, which perhaps will carry three of the new missiles. I suspect that this missile was actually launched from an underwater barge because they don't want to damage their submarine again. Um, and uh, But it does demonstrate that quite soon we, uh, we will have another full-scale operator of submarine-launched ballistic missiles. Mm. Um, Happily, not, not with quite the range of our tridents, but on a similar sort of scale. Christopher Lee, how, how dangerous is this development? I mean, it's dangerous because they can. And if you think in terms of, of all arms all arms development, it means you can go to the next stage. If you go up to, uh, I mean, the... the, the, the Kore- uh, North Koreans have, what, about nine different types from the Hwasong uh, missile, which, is, which can reach, Ala- reach Alaska from... Uh, to the ones they're operating at the moment, which are anything from about sort of 350 miles range. But 350 miles range, when you put it on, you take it off uh, Eric's platform under the water and you put it into the one submarine. If you can drive the submarine off to the coast of America, you've got the equivalent of an intercontinental ballistic missile. Mm. That's going too far to exaggerate what they might do. What is interesting that they have, A, the technology, B, the development technology, and see the groups that approve in North Korea itself with uh, with the general policy of developing a submarine system. And that's a long-term and expensive system, and it needs other things that actually have to go with it. But, you know, it's, it's, not, all, it's not just a one-man mm. organisation. Uh, Professor Eric Grove, I mean, the handling of this and the timing of this, um, just hours after the announcement that nuclear talks with US officials would resume, um, what do you make of that? And, and also, sort of since it's happened, as I understand, there's been no pictures and no Kim Jong-un seeing it and clapping and all the rest of it. No, I mean, I think as your previous Under speaker water, said, yes. <laughs> yeah, um, yes, he, um, he needs a diving suit. Um, I think, <laughs> I, I think that the timing is is very is very significant. As your earlier speaker said, the North Koreans like doing something big just before they start talking again, so they can talk big, so they can feel confident and uh, and uh, argue from what they they believe to be the strongest possible position. I tell you what, Eric. I mean, if you go back, say, just three years or so, 
you ha we were in the days of when the president of the United States uh, really rubbished the North Korean leadership at the United Nations, that everybody mm -hmm. thought, well, will they actually explode one over Japan? And if you really want to get involved in this, you really go and talk to the Japanese because mm. they're the people that really worry about it. But it's all changed, isn't it? We now look at uh, Kim Jong-un, the leader of uh, North Korea, and say, what is he going to do next? You can talk to someone like uh, Yoshidi Suga, who is the chief cabinet okay. secretary in, in Japan. I saw him about three weeks ago. He was talking about these things with North Korea could lead to the first nuclear war. And you say, but you haven't got nuclear weapons. And he says, but China have, and China might use just one, mm. just one nuclear weapon on North Korea to settle the whole business, and then the United States will be beholden to them. Now, that's the depth of the strategic thinking that's happening in the region. Gentlemen, we'll leave it there for the moment. Professor Eric Graves, stay with us. We'll come back to you in a little while. Now, the US has a new top military officer this week. General Mark Milley became chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff on Monday. James Hurst watched the ceremony and has been looking at his credentials. A gun salute for the man now in charge of the world's most powerful armed forces. I will well and faithfully discharge the duties discharge the duties of the office upon which I'm about to enter of the office upon which I'm about to enter congratulations chairman it was the outgoing chairman general joe dunford who swore in his successor general mark milley joined the us army nearly 40 years ago he served on operations in bosnia iraq and egypt as well as three tours in Afghanistan. His decorations include two distinguished service medals, and he has university degrees in political science, international relations, and national security studies. After five years as the Army's Chief of Staff, he was promoted to be the top military officer across all US military branches in front of his Commander-in-Chief. America's armed forces are more powerful than ever. And growing even stronger, we have the newest equipment. President Trump remains the big decision-maker for U.S. forces. General Milley will now be his most senior military advisor for those decisions. You can rest assured that I will always provide you informed, candid, impartial military advice to you, the Secretary of Defense, the National Security Council, into the Congress. General Milley does represent some continuity for the Pentagon, which has had three secretaries of defense in less than a year. And the fact that he and President Trump already have a long-standing working relationship perhaps offers some hope of stability. James Hurst reporting. Now, Sweden's Navy HQ is returning to a vast underground fortress designed to withstand a nuclear attack in what has been seen as a defensive move against a resurgent Russia. Uh, Professor Eric Grove is still with us. Tell us more, Professor Grove. Well, it's, a, it's this extraordinary, unique, really, base at, at a place called Muska on an island. Uh, and uh, it has tunnels, miles of tunnels. Uh, in the past, you uh, you could get ships as as big as destroyers into it. Now, 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 Swedish surface ships tend to be, tend to be a bit uh, a bit smaller, so it'll be a bit easier. But yes, it's an amazing installation. I remember back in the back in the fifties seeing drawings of it. I think of actually in the centerpiece of Eagle Comic, and it looked remarkable then. And it's been it's been run down, of course, it, it, uh, um, or, although not entirely abandoned. And now the Swedish Navy are going back big time and making it their uh, their, their main HQ. Christopher, an overreaction? Yeah, we've we got a professor here who got his military history from Eagle <laughs> Comic. 
they, they were very good centre spreads. I know. I thought I was the only one that had done that, though. No, no, I tell you what, He's I, prolific I, in his background reading. I tell you what is interesting now. You talk to the Swedes at the moment, and they talk about getting involved in things which they hadn't wanted to before. I mean, for example, there was a search for a Russian uh, a submarine, which the Swedes did not want to report there because they didn't want to cause trouble. And it turned out there's an American submarine looking for the Russian submarine. Uh, Sweden, as a as a nuclear, uh, as a non-nuclear country, and as a country which sort of stays out of everything, uh, is involved, and it's it will be threatened, and it sees itself threatened, and so Moscow is still very important. Is it's it also threatened? very important because of because of because of training? Is it threatened, Eric Grove? I think so. Yes, I mean all the Baltic states, in fact, uh, are particularly the ones on. On, on the southern shores of the sea, but but also Scandinavia, uh, they are worried about what about what Russia is doing. Uh, if Russia can annex the Crimea uh, and and apparently get away with it, then it might try annexing somewhere else. Uh, after all, Sweden has a a, 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 a a long record of of confronting Russia over over the centuries, and I think this this is a, a, a sensible defensive move. I'm going to a conference on Baltic security at the end of the month, so I'll be able to perhaps. A report a bit more. Okay. Ask the Swedes why they're building a new mine countermeasure uh, vessels uh, a centre in on the Baltic at the moment. It's because they fear the possibility of not major warfare, but incidental warfare, and they believe that the Russians could mine the ports that lead into uh, that part of s- southern Scandinavia. Professor Eric Grove, good to have you on the programme. Thank you very much. That is all we have time for this week. My thanks to all of our guests and to you, Christopher Lee. You can listen again via the SITREP podcast and get in touch on Twitter at BFBS SITREP. He's laughing because I said thank you to him. From me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening. Bye-bye for now. I'll speak to you at the same time next week.